This message comes from NPR sponsor Total Wine and More. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine and More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Hey everyone, you're listening to Code Switch. I'm B.A. Parker. It's that time of year where travel is on everyone's minds. People are getting ready to visit family and friends, go home for the holidays, or maybe even take a nice end-of-year vacation somewhere warm. And that impulse to leave your surroundings and go explore the world is something that I really understand. So I used to collect travel guides, the used ones that would only cost a buck in the back of my local library. And my mom's house is still filled with all of these guides, like Fromer's Guide to Ireland, Lonely Planets, Botswana, and Namibia, the Rough Guide to Thailand. I would look at a gorgeous evening photo of Wataroon, the Buddhist temple in Bangkok, admiring the sunset and its lit-up praying, imagining myself in a rented sarong stepping into the ordination hall. And then I'd go, huh, the steps kind of look like Chichen Itza. The pathway kind of looks like the National Mall. Those books allowed me to see the world, but they also kind of flattened it. Everything kind of looked like everything else. And I was inadvertently being taught that I was meant to consume all of these other cultures' beauty and that I should be centered in that beauty. And now I have a passport that's never been stamped and an entire world that I'm hesitant to disturb. Traveling can feel exciting and expansive, but it can also feel arduous and indulgent. And tourism can feel gluttonous. And so I wanted to talk to someone who was pushing back on this idea that travel is just about the consumption of a country. Author Shanaz Habib has a new book called Airplane Mode, An Irreverent History of Travel. It's a collection of essays about how people experience travel, or in some instances, don't. I came to travel like most people do, really believing in its potential as this amazing experience that's going to make me a better human being and it's going to expand my horizons. And for a long, long time, I just sort of dreamed of being a travel writer. And then I realized that all the essays I was writing were actually about not traveling. It was about, you know, not going to France or it was about my father who hates to travel or it was about not being this intrepid, adventurous traveler that I sort of wanted to be and thought I should be. So I had all these essays and I was writing about what it means to not be a good traveler. Shanaz came to the U.S. as an immigrant from India and talks about the hurdles she went through to see the world like her Western counterparts. The most egregious example was the trip her and her husband were meant to take to Paris. So this was sometime in 2010, I think. And I was pregnant and we were like, oh, let's do one last trip before the baby comes. And he was like, let's go to Paris for like a week. Mm -hmm. We bought this ticket and then it really dawned on us that we have to get all these documents in order for me to go to Paris. And we had cleared the green card interview and all that. So Mm -hmm. it was all approved. We were just waiting for this one document to come. My advance parole, because without it, I could not apply for a visa to go to France Mm -hmm. with my Indian passport. 
it was just months and months of waiting for this document to come mm-hmm. and it came a day too late so we had to end up canceling the whole ticket and it made me just really think about like passport privilege yeah. and what it means to have a passport with which you can just walk into another country whereas for some of us that was not an option i now have a us passport mm-hmm. and i have been able to travel the way my husband was always able to just walk into a country knowing that this passport will just open doors but it is a very bittersweet thing for me because i have had so many experiences of waiting for visas waiting in visa lines going through these humiliating visa interviews where they treat you as if you are uh, guilty of you know this desire to immigrate or this desire to just become a burden on their society mm-hmm. just for having had the audacity to want to travel to a country. Yeah, I mean you talk talk a lot in the book about passportism. Yes. But for our listeners like what is passportism because I know that there's some people in like in these western parts of the world that just is not clicking. Right. <laughs> yes. Um well, so passportism as I define it in the book is discrimination against passports of a certain color so it's just as we talk about discrimination based on the color of your skin mm-hmm. certain passports passports from third world countries mostly come with a certain stigma it's almost as if that passport unlike passports of rich western countries mm-hmm. those passports are a bit suspect um and it applies for immigration but it also applies for tourism because there is this extensive visa requirement if you have a passport that doesn't have the same kind of power as a western passport and mm-hmm. i sort of think of it as almost a caste hierarchy because mm-hmm. there are varying ranges of power that a passport has mm-hmm. depending on how many doors it can open depending on how many countries have visa free travel for a specific passport so most passports from countries from the global south do not have the power of opening up visa free travel so that's one of the first signs of passportism and obviously it has much larger implications for immigration for the way we talk about who gets to be a migrant and who gets to be an expat who gets to be a traveler and who gets to stay home basically and not not have the opportunity or access to the world can you talk about the decision to become a us citizen and mm. giving up your indian passport cuz i believe you call your citizenship like quote like a gift to a bully yes tell me about that um so i have such complicated feelings about this to this day and in fact yesterday i was talking to a couple of friends about this interview and they said oh you're actually going to go and talk about taking a us passport i we thought this was a secret that nobody was allowed to talk about <laughs> we thought you did not want this acknowledged ever and this is true when i got my us passport i told my husband don't come with me to the naturalization ceremony don't you know send out an email i don't want this is not something i'm doing because i want to be a us citizen it's more i just want the powers that come with this random piece of document that is so powerful so i have really complicated feelings about having to give up my indian citizenship and having to take on this document just for the privilege of travel just for the privilege of being able to move through the world freely um it is a complicated time to have an indian citizenship too because there is a super right wing government in india that has really amped up discrimination against muslims so it was 
this was kind of beginning when I started going through the process of becoming a U.S. citizen. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I feel like it was a gamble for me that kind of paid off weirdly because all I wanted was the power to travel freely through the world. But Mm -hmm. in a way, what I gained was something that many Indian Muslims are now considering leaving the country. And um, so in a way, I feel like I made this choice which turned out in retrospect to be a really good choice in terms of my status as an Indian Muslim. Mm -hmm. But it's not a right choice in terms of my affiliations. Mm -hmm. I still feel I am very much Indian. Um, India is the country where I feel most at home, most comfortable. I want to have a relationship with that culture, that heritage, that part of me. So it's a really mixed experience for me in terms of what I gained and what I lost. One question that I had while reading the book, um, did you really lean in the phrase third world? Yeah. And why was it important for you to use that phrasing? Um, It's the phrase that came most naturally to me. I tried my best to write developing world and global south. And, you know, at work, Developing countries is a term I use a lot. Yeah. Um, and I hate it. Every time I use that word, I just feel like this is such a lie. It's not the developing world. It's the exploited world. There's a reason why that world is developing and this world is developed. The other thing that bothers me about developing countries or developing world is that it has this very linear model of development, right? So the idea is there is a goal point which is developed. And what counts as developed, it's industrialized It is carbon dependent. And that's not great for our future as a planet. In fact, the kind of low carbon, low industrialized economies that we see in the global south more now Mm -hmm. should actually be our future. Um, So in a way, this linear model of development is actually a false idea of a progress, a false idea of development. So coming back to your question about the third world, no, yeah. now that I've gotten all my angst about <laughs> yeah, developing like, countries. Yeah, like this colonized rubric needs to go. I got you, I got you. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I just love the words third world. It's the phrase I use. You know, when I'm talking to other fellow people of color, that comes most naturally to my lips when talking about this common diasporic experience And I think it's a very poetic phrase. I think it's a phrase that really captures a certain marginal perspective. And I find that people who have grown up in the third world, like me, have that quirky sideways glance at the first world. Whereas like a Westerner is like, you can't say third world. That's not nice. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, boy. You talk, okay, you talk about, this is something I've been thinking about all week or all last week. You talk about not feeling entitled to the world. Mm. What do you mean by that? Because then I was like, wait, do I feel entitled to the world? And a part of me was like, a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, This was a feeling that I encountered a lot when I was in Turkey traveling uh, on my own, possibly for the first time. You know, in Turkey, I feel like this was the first time that I set out Um, on like a backpacker trail with a lonely planet. Mm -hmm. And I felt there was a difference between me and other people whom I encountered on the backpacker trail and how easily they were able to just accept the fact that there was a trail through the world and that they could travel that trail very freely, Mm -hmm. just taking what they need from each place. And 
even just the sense of you know the comfort they felt with this idea of travel itself for as for me you know i had just and en- en- gone through a bunch of visa troubles and just got a new us visa after several years of not being able to travel at all including not being able to travel back to india to see my family and so it was so new to me this ability to just get out and see the world so i did not feel entitled to it i did not and i also didn't want to feel entitled to it mm-hmm. i wanted to feel the discomfort of not feeling that the entire world is just laid at my feet for me to travel through mm-hmm. yeah no i understand that because again i'm i've not haven't traveled that often um i had i i got permission to say this if i wanted to mm-hmm. i have a friend she's a white woman uh-huh um a couple of years ago she was like I'm going to travel continental Asia because I just left my job. I'm going to like travel the world. Yeah. And it was just her by herself. She went to Mongolia, she went to Nepal, she went to China. She took, yeah. she took all these pictures. She had like this renaissance. It was she had the best mm, time. Yeah. But also I was like a I don't know if I could do that. I don't have the confidence to do that. Mm. Um and B, I just just never I guess it never occurred to me that I could. Hmm. Cuz I had a friend like we're side by side and like, "Oh, she can do this thing." Yeah. But also as like a black woman, yeah, going out into like a, a noble land for me, hmm. I don't know how that would go. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is which is fair, I think. Mm-hmm. But she had this liberty and this confidence yeah. that I was uh really envious of, but mm-hmm. also just like you can feel entitled to the world. Yeah. And and what of it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know absolutely. And you know I'm married to a white man and there are ways in which he feels entitled to the world that I can see the distinction when we talk, especially when we just met and we were talking about travel, we were talking about going somewhere together. Mm-hmm. I could see the difference in the way he talked and the way I talked. And you know, I think I have over the 13 14 years of our marriage sort of taken away some of his entitlement <laughs> i've helped him find his imposter syndrome good for you yeah <laughs> so um you know just the other day a friend and i were talking about palestine and how terrible what's happening there is and my friend had visited palestine and at some point they said someday we should go to palestine together and all they meant was it's a beautiful place yeah it's a very special place but what i heard was in the midst of a crisis where so many palestinians don't even have freedom of movement to be able to just say someday we should go there together it just struck me as a very bizarre note of entitlement that mm-hmm. feeling that oh yeah we can go there whenever we want we don't have to consider the blockade we don't have to consider mm-hmm. border crossings we don't have to consider the airport security in tel aviv um yeah so it's not that i blame them for saying that right yeah it's not that i think that no one should travel to palestine because palestinians have so many travel restrictions it's just that there is a way in which the freedoms that you have the powers and privileges that you have can make traveling somewhere seem so easy and so good and so necessary in ways that people who face travel restrictions mm-hmm. cannot ever think of travel in the same terms. Coming up, 
We ask if it's possible to be an ethical tourist. I definitely don't want to be saying, oh, don't travel. Travel is bad for you. I just want people to really question the context of their travel. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Debit card users, Discover has something especially for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can start earning cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right, cash back on debit purchases because cash back isn't just for credit cards. Plus, there are no fees, period. Finally, the game-changing checking account you deserve. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. This message comes from NPR sponsor Squarespace. Start with a best-in-class website template and customize every design detail with Fluid Engine, a reimagined drag-and-drop technology for desktop or mobile. It's never been easier for anyone to unlock unbreakable creativity. Use code NPR to save 10% off your first purchase of a domain or website and stretch your imagination online with Squarespace. This message comes from NPR sponsor JLL and their podcast, Trends and Insights, the future of commercial real estate. It's gone through some upgrades recently, and it's churning out valuable insights on the industry to help you stay informed. Each week, you'll tap into a global network of commercial real estate professionals and hear about market trends, strategies, and best practices. So broaden your perspective. Subscribe to Trends and Insights, the future of commercial real estate at jll.com slash podcast. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This is Code Switch. I'm B.A. Parker. I spoke with author Shanaz Habib about her new book, Airplane Mode, and whether or not she felt entitled to the world as a tourist. In the book, she talks about her experiences attending mosques around the world, how they differ, and how she finally felt accepted in one, but only because she was a tourist. I asked her to read for me. From the top of 37 to the You'll see it to the stop at 38. If you could read. A man once chased me out of the 96th Street Mosque in New York, the city's biggest mosque, because I had wandered into the main room, which was only for men. In Korikoda in India, at one of the oldest mosques in the country, the imam shut the door in my face. In Turkey, too, Men's spaces and women's spaces were clearly separated in most mosques. However, in many of the Grand Ottoman mosques in Istanbul, women's spaces were often artfully designed spaces built into the topography of the mosque. They were not afterthoughts or basements. I had arrived in these mosques as a tourist with a checklist of things to see, but the generosity of their soaring roofs, their soft carpets offered freely to all who wanted to pray, reminded me how much I loved the fluidity between stillness and movement in namaz. I am no longer capable of praying in corridors and corners and basements, 
while men monitor mosques like immigration officers. I don't want to be part of any mosque where women are treated like terrorists, our bodies like bombs waiting to go off. That night in Konya, when Jannat Abe invited me to join the circle of men, it was perhaps the first time in my life that men in a mosque made me feel welcome. How do you, how do you process that? How do you reconcile yeah. that that privilege? Also, that like you're welcome in the space. Also, you like you want to be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's always the complicated position in which you find yourself sometimes as a traveler mm-hmm. or as a tourist. To be a tourist is to have access to experiences that people in those places may not have. Mm-hmm. In Turkey, in that moment, for instance, I felt that I was being invited to join this group of men because i was a tourist because i was not a woman from their community so yes it does open up those experiences and you have to question you you know instead of sort of thinking of it as a kind of right as a kind of entitlement you do have to question how you are not just this fly on the wall you're not just like this local themselves mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that you're a local you have changed that place you've changed that moment by being there as a tourist That's my that's my concern like I don't want to change anything. Yeah. I just don't I think I just don't want to get in the way, but I don't know if I am in the way. That's my assumption. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to this idea that we can, you know, there's this distinction, right, that we make between tourism and travel. Mm-hmm. Um what is the distinction? Well, I I guess I would say when people use the word tourist in a derogatory way we think of tourists as the people who get in the way the people who want the most surface level experience yeah. and then we think of travelers as people who are a bit more thoughtful a bit more conscious you know people who want to perhaps go deeper into the travel experience mm-hmm. and for me it's a very artificial distinction because you can think that you're a traveler and still be a tourist. Mm. So for me it makes more sense to just embrace being a tourist. Yeah. and know that you really as a stranger in this place you're really only going to have a surface level experience mm-hmm. that thinking that you can have like this immensely deep experience and connection that other people traveling will not have just because you are such a thoughtful and smart person i think that is one of the pitfalls of travel and tourism that makes total sense i mean i think your book does a great job at distilling that mm. there's this idea of like the religion of tourism and i think i got that a lot again when i wasn't going anywhere when i was younger like you know travel young and travel often. Yeah. And I was like how? Where? <laughs> When? What like in what capacity? And then like all of these countries where tourism is mm. the export and yeah. when it comes to, like this religion of tourism. Yeah. Is is there an ethical way to even do mm. it? I mean it's an excellent question and depending on the day my answer changes. <laughs> and i've tried all these different answers out on my own travels and my on myself uh-huh. there is my father's position which is don't ever travel <laughs> um and he's not doing it because of ethics he's he just hates travel and there are lots of people i've met who are like oh i would never want to be a tourist somewhere that's the worst and it's a moral position against tourism and some of them are motivated by the environmental pitfalls of tourism 
And then there's also this idea that, yeah, by traveling, you sort of expand your horizons and it's good for the world. So I don't know. It really depends. For me, I know that it's very hard to stop traveling. I have family in other continents, so it's just a fair company. I'm just going to travel, right? And I'm also going to travel to other places. So for me, I really like the low moral ground where I travel, but I'm very conscious of the ethical and political questions surrounding travel. Mm -hmm. And I definitely don't want to be saying, oh, don't travel. Travel is bad for you. I just want people to really question the context of their travel to really understand the political and power privileges surrounding travel. And just, I think, bringing that awareness to your travel, uh, I think will make you open up to the history of the places that you're traveling to Mm -hmm. in ways that go beyond little sidebars in guidebooks. What does the understanding of that privilege do? Like, why is that important? Because I think a large part of some of like my travel experiences mm. is to think be think beyond the place and the people as entertainment yeah and i think my always my concern about travel about tourism uh-huh. is that we're thinking of a place and a a collection of people as our own disney world mm. so like case in point like last year mm-hmm. i had to go to hawaii i had to go yeah. i went to hawaii it was uh-huh. my cousin's birthday yeah and i interviewed an author yeah and who who had wrote written a book and basically like tourists should not be coming to hawaii they're, just, they're destroying the aquifer mm-hmm. it's like it's terrible and i was like i'm so sorry tickets already been bought my mom is going to kill me <laughs> i'm so sorry yeah and then like i got i got there Felt awful the whole time. Yeah. Just being like, I am complicit mm-hmm. in this thing. Yeah. And having all of that, but also making a decision in my mind that I will treat Hawaii as if I were a vampire. And that, you know, like a vampire's rule is <laughs> you can't go into someone's home unless you're invited. Yeah. I'm not going back unless someone is like, Parker, can you please come to Hawaii? Right. <laughs> we need you to like, <laughs> Report a story. And I'm like, sure, I'm there. Yeah. And so thinking of the place as someplace to be additive or leave it alone. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I often think about how much the notion of customer service has changed the way we travel. Right. How so? One of the things I um, understood through writing my book and researching is that when we traveled in, let's say, in pre-1850, pre the modern era, during the medieval times, travelers kind of had to throw themselves on the hospitality of the places they were traveling to, mm-hmm. right? So there was a relationship there where the traveler, the f- person who came to this uh, place was at a disadvantage. They needed the place and the people on that place mm-hmm. more than the people and the place needed them. Whereas the way we travel now we have this sense of how tourism is good for these places, how we as tourists are, you know, helping, you know, pouring our dollars into the economy, how these places really desperately need our money. And so tourism has kind of changed the story about travel so that instead of us looking for hospitality, we feel like we're already sort of like saving these places that we travel to. And we're looking for customer service. It's become a very transactional experience, right? And when I think about being a better traveler, I want to think about 
our interactions with, this is another contested term, locals. And in so much of travel writing, Mm -hmm. the local is always a prop. And it's a lot like what you were saying about your trip to Hawaii and how you wanted to go beyond like this disnification of travel, right? And if you look at uh, a lot of the travel writing I read, I find that the traveler is the protagonist. And then all these locals, the people they meet are just these props. And sometimes they don't speak English well. Sometimes they need your help. Sometimes they are just there to like make your path smoother. People outside the United States are funny and smart and intelligent and great to talk to. And rarely do I see that reflected in travel writing. Rarely do I see travel writing where the characters that you meet on your travels are not just there to give you a better travel experience, but are people with agency and intelligence and incredible perspectives on the world. So... There's a way in which travel and travel writing kind of shrinks the places that we travel to into a kind of customer service experience, into Mm -hmm. a consumer experience. So that, I think, for me, is primarily what it would mean to change the framework around travel. And I don't know how to do that. Don't ask me because that no, is so like, complicated. Tell me right I'm now. I'm just a how little human being. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you had, you know, you had a food writer here who was talking about how people get described as the Julia Child of yeah. Chinese cooking, the Julia Child of Indian cooking, yeah. and how that vocabulary, that itself, is so othering. And I was thinking, when I heard that, I was thinking of how the Marshall Plan brought all these young, white Americans, all these Ivy League-educated Americans to Paris, right, mm-hmm. to France. All right, so, okay. Uh, okay, so, like, now explanatory comment here. The Marshall Plan was basically America's aid to uh, Western Europe after World War II, which included funneling a bunch of money into encouraging Americans to visit Europe as tourists. Mm -hmm. And Julia Child was one of those people. Julia, her husband was a diplomat. And before that, I think they spent time in China and Sri Lanka. I mean, two countries with great cuisines. But then the fact that It's French cooking that then takes the United States by storm. You have to see how the institutional framework of the Marshall Plan Mm -hmm. led to French cooking becoming this huge sensation in the U.S. through Julia Child. So there is this historic connection there that's invisible. When we see Julia Child, we don't see like this state conspiracy to make everyone go to France. Yeah. The funding and all the institutional support that Paris tourism gets from the United States through its Marshall Plan. We don't see all that. Yeah. I don't know, Shanaz. I think, uh, again, it's, it's a problem. <laughs> I do now think it's a conspiracy. I didn't before. <laughs> no. Yes. Yeah. So the holidays are coming up. Yes. And people are all about that travel. Yeah. Do do you want people to reconsider those expectations? About? About traveling for the holidays or just not at all. Just like, mm. just be more conscientious mm. and that's it. Yeah. One thing that I have tried to do when traveling at very busy times like holidays, mm-hmm. and I actually think of summer travel as this annual migration for lots of immigrants from the U.S., U.K. and other Western countries towards the global south, towards the third world. And, you know, Thanksgiving travel and holiday travel in December. These peak times, 
as moments when we have to remember that we are like this huge herd of animals traveling and we have to think of ourselves as not being in competition with everyone who's traveling and i do this all the time i get into this mode where i'm like oh my god i have to make sure i board first and i have to make sure that i get the best seats and i have to make sure that i get the cheapest fares and i'm trying to think of that particular moment in travel this holiday travel as a time for solidarity with other travelers and often that means maybe i can do something for a fellow traveler to make their travels a little easier mm-hmm. instead of constantly thinking about just what i want to get out of this travel mm-hmm. um and it makes my travel a much better experience too um and often it's not possible but yeah there is this way in which this idea of our travel being very special and travel being this you know customer service experience this transaction mm-hmm. experience makes you think about travel as something this, that's very individualistic and i want to have a sense of um solidarity i want to have a sense of what can i do to think of this as a moment of cooperation between all these people who are traveling and often that means maybe i can do something for a fellow traveler to make their travels a little easier instead of constantly thinking about just what i want to get out of this travel and it makes my travel a much better experience too and that's our show you can follow us on instagram at @nprcodeswitch if email is more your thing ours is codeswitch@npr.org and subscribe to the podcast on the npr app or wherever you get your podcasts just wanted to give a quick shout out to our codeswitch plus listeners we appreciate you and thank you for being a subscriber Subscribing to Code Switch Plus means getting to listen to all of our episodes without any sponsor breaks. It also helps support our show. So if you love our work, please consider signing up at plus.npr.org/codeswitch. Big shout out to the rest of the Code Switch massive: Jess Kung, Xavier Lopez, Courtney Stein, Dahlia Mortada, Verlin Williams, Steve Drummond, Julia Carney, Jean Demby, and Loy Lizaraga. I'm BA Parker. Hydrate This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast Choiceology, hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book How to Change. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com/podcast or wherever you listen. If you're looking for a new way to support this show and public media, please consider signing up for the NPR Plus podcast bundle. NPR Plus listeners get to unlock sponsor-free listening and bonus episodes from NPR shows like this one. You can find out more at plus.npr.org.